0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning, River Bluff. I am Dean Infinger. I am an associate pastor here at the church, and I'm also a pastoral counselor in our River Bluff Discipleship Counseling Center, and I am giving the message this morning on Halloween. Yeah, that's what they do to the new guy, give him the message on Halloween. Um, but it should be a good message, but if, if this is your first time visiting River Bluff, if you're new here, please come back and hear our lead pastor, Joe Still. He does this all the time. He's really good at it. I'm kind of an unknown quantity, but I have figured out that I can make everybody here happy this morning because it comes down to three groups. Now, in the first group, They're happy just because it's something different. Oh, Dean's given a message this morning. That's different. I'm happy. And then the second group, I hope, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will actually receive something from this message. hope there's a lot of people in the second group. And then there's the third group. The third group is going to be happy, very happy, when I stop talking and the praise team comes back out. But we're going to continue our study uh, in the book of Nehemiah, And today, we're going to be in Nehemiah 6, uh, verses 1 through 14. And the big theme of today is identity. Because the world and the enemy wants us to believe things about ourselves that are contrary and opposition to who we are in Christ and who God says we are. And if you take anything away from this message, know that you're so precious to the Lord And he loves you so very much. And we'll look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah has this identity that is immovable, unshakable. It's as solid as the wall that he helped build around Jerusalem. So let's start in Nehemiah 6, uh, verses 1 through 14. Now when Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Heciferim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said... Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God. According to these things they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. So we can see in the beginning here that Nehemiah is just about finished. All the brickwork, all the stones in the wall are complete. There's no breach. The only thing left is to hang the doors and the gates. And then Jerusalem will be secure. You know, in a football analogy, which I watched a lot of football yesterday, but in a football analogy, Nehemiah is in the red zone. He can see the goal line. He's just about complete. Now, of course, all his enemies realize this as well. So they begin to come after him to try this this last-ditch effort to stop the progress on the wall. And they start, first of all, with this letter-writing campaign. And we know there's four letters sent to Nehemiah. Now, we really don't know what was in those letters, but commentators have theorized that it was probably reconciliation letters. Probably reconciliation letters. Or maybe they progressed to the point that they were, you know, take a break, kind of rest and relaxation, come out and talk with us in the plane of Ono. So, in my mind, those letters kind of went something like this. Nehemiah, Sambalat here. Hey, you know, we've been enemies too long. Come on out to the Plain of Ono. We'll get all this settled out, me and you and Tobiah and Geshem. We'll all be there. Everything will be nice. And then it progresses to, you know, it's fun in the Plain of Ono, Nehemiah. Tobiah's making lamb kebabs. Yeah. Geshem the Arab, he's going to have camel racing. Everybody loves camel racing. Come on, Nehemiah. You know what they say. What happens in the Plain of Ono stays in the Plain of Ono. But we see that Nehemiah is not lured away. He's not persuaded. And the enemy will try and lure us away from God, from his purposes and plans. You know, we have people here around the river, a bunch of people that are all involved in ministry. But but here recently, I've talked with with three people over the past couple of months. I have a gentleman that, that does construction for a living. And he feels like the Lord's maybe put it on his heart to take one Saturday a month and do construction projects for single mothers and for widows and the elderly in our church. And then there's a, there's a young lady in our church who's, who's thought about maybe starting an adoption group for our church and really people in the community that are going through that process of adoption and maybe to help those families as they journey through that process of raising an adopted child. And we have another gentleman who's mentioned maybe starting a men's hike. And I'm all for it. I mean, as long as it's cool outside and we're walking downhill, I will be there. But those are those ideas, things that maybe the Lord has put on their heart, plans and purposes for their life. Will the enemy try and lure them away? Maybe. He's always coming against us. You know, I love that Nehemiah didn't take the bait. The lure was there, but Nehemiah didn't take it. When I think about bait, I I think about fishing with my grandfather. Uh, I loved to go fishing with my grandfather, and he would surprise me. I would come home from school, and his car would be in our driveway with his john boat out behind it. And I'd get so excited, and we'd go fishing. Now, this wasn't fancy fishing. You know, we would have a cane pole and a bobber, and we used crickets for bait. And my grandfather was a tremendous fisherman. You know, he'd just start pulling them in, and I wouldn't have anything. And I'd say, Granddaddy, what's going on? He said, Well, bubble up, why don't you pull up your pole? Let's see what's going on there. And I'd pull up my pole, and there'd be this nice, shiny hook with no cricket on it. I'd say, Well, the fish nibbled your bait, so let's re- rebate your hook, put it in the water. Now, Dean, this time, I want you to concentrate on that bobber. Don't get distracted. Look away, concentrate on that bobber. So when you see that bobber go under the water, I want you to pull back on that pole and set that hook. When that fish has taken that bait and you've set that hook, you've got him. You can take your time and move that fish around and easily pull him into the boat. And isn't that way with us? The enemy lures with a baited hook. If we take that, then he's got us. If he had gone out to the plain of Ono, if Nehemiah had had gone after the bait, the work on the wall would have stopped. And I love Nehemiah's response. Uh, Nehemiah 6.3, he says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He's not lured away. The work doesn't stop. Now next, We're going to look at this open letter that's full of false accusations and even a threat to Nehemiah's relationship with his king, King Artaxerxes. So let's take a look at Nehemiah 6, uh, 5 through 9. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king, King Artaxerxes, will hear these reports. So now come and let us meet and take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I love that Nehemiah ends that with a prayer. But we have this open letter that comes to Nehemiah. And so we can assume the first four letters were closed letters. In other words, they were written out on parchment as they did in that day, and they were rolled up and sealed. But this open letter comes from Sambalot in Samaria all the way to Nehemiah in Jerusalem. So it's an open letter. We can assume the messenger read it. And maybe Sambalot said, yeah, show this letter to every little town, every little village on your way to Jerusalem. Let's get that rumor mill started that this is what the Jews intend to do, that they intend to rebel, and that Nehemiah really wants to be king. So we can see those false accusations and, of course, then the threat against him. So we see that the enemy in the second strategy is to use lies and threats. And I believe this second strategy was a direct attack against Nehemiah's identity because Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Now, when I started preparing for this, I thought I knew what a cupbearer was, but I was wrong. Uh, In my mind, a a cupbearer was just this poor guy who walked into the royal court and said, they forced me to taste all this food and drink this wine, and I didn't die. So, here you go. Hope everybody's happy. I guess they're going to make me do this tomorrow. But in that time, in that context, in a royal court, a cupbearer was a very prestigious position. They had to be men of great integrity. They had to be super trustworthy. The cupbearers of that day were the secret service for the president. Basically, Nehemiah was saying, I'll take a poison bullet to protect my king. And King Artaxerxes had to have complete trust in Nehemiah. Basically, he was saying... Nehemiah, I trust you with my life. And not only that, I trust you with my wife, the queen's life. And really the whole royal court depended on him because he would select the food and make sure it was okay for the whole royal court. So it was a highly prestigious position. In fact, a lot of times the cupbearer was this unofficial advisor because he was so highly trusted, he had so much integrity, the king may rely on him for just some advice. So you can see that these false accusations—that he wants to be king after he's gone to his king and got the favor to go to Jerusalem—that that had to be kind of a hot button issue for Nehemiah. How dare you say that about me? You know, I think another lord that Nehemiah would have been wanted to go to the desert and confront them over that. I mean, it was that serious. But he handles it in a godly way he just says hey this is a fantasy you've you've drawn up in your own mind and i don't care that it came all the way from samaria to jerusalem i'm not buying it and i don't think anybody else is buying it because i'm trusting god and i'm standing in that identity and now i want to look at one other way that the enemy came at nehemiah and the third way that he came at him was probably the most hurtful for Nehemiah, because it came from people that he should have been able to trust. It came from people who should have been supporting him. So let's look in Nehemiah 6, 10 through 14. Now, when he went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Again, he ends with a prayer, and we see this third way that opposition can come from those closest to you. Opposition can come from those closest to you. These prophets, because we learned there's not just one, because then he mentions Nodiah and the rest of the prophets, so there's many prophets saying this same thing to him, trying to frighten him. And these prophets were probably members of Jerusalem that helped build the wall. Why wouldn't they want it to be secure? Why would they come against Nehemiah? He recognizes that they're false prophets that are bought and paid for. But it's that opposition that comes from those that should be supporting comes, comes from those closest to him. You know, I don't know what it was like even when Nehemiah set out from Babylon to, to do this work, but you know, he could have had people very close to him that loved him who said, so Nehemiah, you're, let me get this straight, you're going to go to Jerusalem and build a wall? You know, you're no construction engineer. You know, and Nehemiah, Jerusalem's surrounded by it by enemies. I mean, you're no military leader. And, and hey, Nehemiah, I know, I know the king made you governor, but have you ever really governed people before? I mean, Nehemiah, you're a cupbearer. You know, stay in your lane. But God broke Nehemiah's heart for the condition of Jerusalem. And even though he wasn't a construction engineer or ever been a governor, he was obedient to God, and he stepped into that, and God equipped him for the task. You know, I have people that, that I know love me and care for me, uh, and I told a lot of people that I was doing this message so they could be praying for me. But there are some people that I didn't tell. Because those individuals are kind of the worriers, you know, and they would say things like, Oh, Dean, you're doing a message in big church? Oh, no. I mean, on Halloween? Ah, I wouldn't do that. No. Can you get out of it? I mean, Dean, you know, I I love you, you know, and everything, but you're really no preacher. You're not qualified in that area. I mean, you're a pastoral counselor, you know, and even in that, you mainly listen and just talk a little bit. So, I could listen to that, or I could listen to what God says about me, the truth, which is that I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me, that I am victorious in Christ, that I am more than an overcomer in Christ, that I am God's child born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Those are promises, and I'm standing on those promises, and I'm trusting God, and I know I'm not here alone. I know the Holy Spirit is with me. Thank you. But that's the truth versus the lies So we've talked a lot about identity. Does does the enemy really come after our identity? Is that his thing? Well, I I want you to turn to Luke. To Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time." So we can see that the devil came directly at Jesus' identity. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you. He came directly at Jesus' identity. And I love Jesus' response. It's what we should do. He responds with Scripture. Man does not live by bread alone. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. But you can bet if the devil came after Jesus' identity... He's going to come after yours and mine. The devil is a liar. He's the father of lies. That's his character. And he wants to come after our identity. So, how do we see this play out today? How do we see it play out today? I mean, if we look back at this temptation of Jesus, don't you think the devil knew that Jesus was the Son of God? I mean, he's fulfilled every prophecy there ever was. He's born of a virgin. Holy Spirit's all over him, and yet he still comes after his identity. But I think today what we see are lies that the enemy sows into our lives that he wants us to believe about ourselves that aren't true, that aren't the way that God sees us, that are not our identity in Christ. So I'd like to bring up some common lies. Um, Let's read through them together. I'm not good enough. I'll never measure up. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy of love. I'm a bad person. There's something wrong with me. If you really knew me, you'd reject me. I'm the black sheep of the family. Those are lies. I saw a list like that probably five, six years ago. And I remember I kept going back to the title saying common lies. Because as I read some of those, I didn't think it was a lie. I thought it was who I was. It was my truth. And I think that's the first step, is to realize that that's not who we are. That's not who we are in Christ. I had to realize that. And, and I believe the way that plays out in our lives, if we could bring up the iceberg, um, the, this, this is a concept from Pure Desire Ministries, but you can see... At the tip of the iceberg, above the waterline, are your actions and behaviors. Everybody can see that. But underneath the waterline are your thoughts and feelings. And then underneath that are your core beliefs. So if your core belief is a lie, it's going to affect your thoughts and feelings and then affect your behaviors and actions. So how does this happen? In that last passage in Luke 4, the very end, it says, And the devil departed for a more opportune time. I believe the devil looks for opportunities to sow these lies into our life. And what I'd like to do this morning is give you two scenarios of how I see that happen. Now, first, I want to give you a disclaimer. Uh, in these scenarios, it's not me it's not anybody I know. It's, it's not anybody I'm counseling. So I'd like to bring up the slide of Billy. Right, this is Billy. Billy's a super-duper shortstop. There's not a ball that gets by Billy. He's got that great eye-hand coordination, and he's really good in math. But he's not so good in English. He struggles in English. That's not his subject. And his dad's really been hard on him to get his English grades up. And I don't know, maybe his dad struggled in English too, and, and he feels like he was limited or, or didn't achieve what he wanted to because he wasn't good in English. So he's hard on Billy in English. But Billy makes up his mind that he's going to show his dad. I'm going to prove something to him. So Billy has a spelling test coming up on Friday, and he starts studying all his spelling words, really studying and then he gets his sister to quizzing. And then he gets his mom to quizzing. Then he goes back to his sister to quiz him. To the point that they're like, "Billy, you've got it, okay? You're going to do great." So Billy goes in on Friday, and he takes the spelling test. He feels like he did pretty good. And then Monday morning, the teacher comes in and she lays the paper down on Billy's desk, and she puts her hand on his shoulder. And she said, Billy, I'm so proud of you. I can tell you worked really, really hard on these spelling words. And he looks down, and he has a 98. A 98, it's the best he's ever done in English. And next to the 98, she wrote very good. And in the two O's of the good, she put a little smiley face and two exclamation marks. And Billy is so proud of this paper. you know. And he he slides it into the binder because he, he doesn't want to wrinkle it or anything like that. He wants it to remain perfect. And then he puts that in his book bag and he goes home and he can't wait for his dad to get home from work and finally he hears his dad in the kitchen and so Billy goes and gets the binder out and he slides the paper out and it's still perfect, there's not a wrinkle in it 98, very good, smiley face, two exclamation marks he kind of puffs out his chest and he goes down the hall see his dad and he goes, dad I got my, my spelling test his dad said, really? let me see Ninety-eight, not bad. Let's see what you missed, Billy. Oh, I before E. And he hands the paper back to Billy, and he says, You know, Billy, if you'd have really tried hard, I bet you'd have made a hundred. Billy is crushed. He, He can't believe it. And he starts walking away, and his mom realizes what's happening, and she's like, Billy, we're so proud of you. But he doesn't hear any of it. And he goes into his room, and he takes that perfect paper, and he crumples it up and stuffs it in his book bag. And he goes, and he sits on the edge of his bed, and he thinks he's too old to cry, but he can't help it. The tears just start coming down. And he says... I'll never be good enough for my dad. And in that opportune moment, the enemy comes in and says, that's right. You're not good enough. You'll never measure up, Billy. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to be good enough. And a couple weeks later, Billy's at baseball practice, and his coach comes to him and he says, listen, Billy, he said, you're so good. We're, we're going to have to move you to first base because we're struggling there. The guy's been missing throws that have been coming to him. So we're going to move you to first base. And Billy, Billy thinks that's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm not good enough for shortstop. He's saying I don't measure up and they're going to have to move me to a lesser position. That's really what he's saying. Because, see, that's become a core belief in Billy. So his thoughts and feelings and behaviors and actions are all based on that belief. I want to give you one other scenario, if we can bring up Amanda. Amanda's in ninth grade, and Amanda is a straight-A student. She is really gifted, really talented. She has friends, but Amanda's big thing is she wants to be popular. Okay, so Amanda's at home, and she goes into the kitchen and fixes herself a bowl of ice cream. She sits down in the den, and then her mother walks into the room and says, Amanda, are you eating ice cream again? And Amanda, in true teenager fashion, says, yeah, so what? And her mother says, well, you know, Amanda, you you gain weight so easily, and I, I think the dairy makes your acne worse, and don't you want to be asked to the prom? And Amanda picks up her bowl of ice cream and she goes into the kitchen. And she throws it in the sink. She's stomping back through and her mom stops her and she's like, Amanda, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? She says, Mom, in one sentence, she told me I'm fat, I'm covered in acne, and I'll never have a chance of a date. And her mother says, no, no, that, that's not what I'm saying. And maybe it wasn't. Maybe she didn't get asked to the prom and, and she's trying to help Amanda in some way. Maybe shield her from some type of disappointment. But Amanda goes into her room. And she slams the door. And she looks around the walls of her bedroom. And she sees the posters of pop stars and singers and models. And they're all airbrushed perfect. And then she looks in the mirror. And all Amanda can see are imperfections. And she thinks to herself, "My mom's right. Who will go out with me?" Well, Amanda then goes out with guys that she really shouldn't. Guys that are that are not kind, that are mean, that use her. And she stays with them because she thinks this is the best I can hope for. Because Her core belief is that she's not worthy of love. The enemy has said, you're unlovable. You're not worthy of love, Amanda. And she believes that. She takes that in and lives out of that identity. But what does God say? How does God view us? I I love the story of the prodigal son because Jesus is telling us, this is what my dad is like. Timothy Keller does a wonderful job of of giving us the context of that day. When that son went to his dad and he said, Dad, I want my inheritance. Basically, he was saying at that time, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. And the father does the unthinkable in that time. He gives him the money. And we know the son goes off and he loses all the money. And he's in need So he decides, I'm going to go back home. And here's my plan. I'm going to tell my dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son, but could I at least be a servant? So he has that all mapped out. And we know from the story that the father sees the son when he's way off, off in the distance. And he has compassion for him. But think about a world and the son has hurt him in that way. And said, I wish you were dead, Dad because I want my money and he sees him coming and that worldly dad would probably cross his arms and say here he comes probably wants more money and the way he hurt me you know he's gonna have to do a lot to ever get back in my good graces for me to ever trust him but that's not the story that Jesus tells he tells of this father that is just overwhelmed by compassion and love for his son, so much so that he runs to his son. And in that day, a patriarch of a family would not run. To do it, he would have to lift up his robes. He could expose himself. The people that Jesus was talking to, that was scandalous that a father would run. But that's the way Jesus describes his father. He runs to him. He throws his arm around him. He puts a ring on his finger and he says, bring a coat, bring shoes, kill the fatted calf because my son was lost and now he's found. And if God was a father in the story of Billy, when he gave him that 98, he would have thrown him up in the air. He would have danced with him in the kitchen. And he said, Billy, give me that 98. I'm putting it on a refrigerator door and I'm never taking it down because I want everyone that comes into our home to see how great you are in English. And guess what? I know it's Monday, but we're all going out for pizza because that's Billy's favorite. That's the heart of God. And for Amanda, God would say, Amanda, please see yourself through my eyes. See how incredibly beautiful you are, how precious you are to me. And Amanda, you are so worthy of love. You're so worthy of love that I gave my perfect son to die on a Roman cross to have a relationship with you because you've accepted Christ. That's who you are, Amanda. You're in a royal family. You're a princess. Don't go out with anyone who doesn't treat you like that. That's the heart of God. I'm going to ask the praise team if they can start making their way up. and I just want to share one more story with you. My, my other grandfather uh, lived far away, he lived in, in Massachusetts, uh, in a small town south of Boston. And every year at Christmas time, we would go to Massachusetts. And it was great for a southern kid from South Carolina because I would get to go and play in snow and make snowmen and go sledding and play with my cousins outside, and I loved it. But I would get so cold. You know, I was a southern kid in the frozen North. And they could stay out there all day. They were acclimated to it, but I would get cold and I would feel like my hands and feet were blocks of ice. And I'd say, I've got to go inside. And I would go inside and I'd go over to my grandfather's side where my grandfather and my grandmother were. And as soon as he would see me, he would pull me into his lap and he would start rubbing my hands and my feet and warming me up. And, and I begin to feel so warm and so safe, and so loved. And I would just kind of lean into his flannel shirt, and a lot of times I'd just doze off right there in his arms. And I really believe the heart of God is that so many times, he just wants to pull you in his lap, and he wants to start rubbing away any of those past hurts, any of those painful things that have been said to you. He wants to rub out any lies that you may be believing. So pray with me this morning. My Father, I I just pray, I hope that I've been able to convey your heart and your deep love for people. And and Father, if if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, I just pray that you work in their heart this morning. Lord, that they see the love that you have for them. And Lord, that you you sent your son as a sacrifice for their sin so that you can have this special relationship with them. Lord, I pray that they come to you, that they accept you, that they surrender their life to you and follow you. Because it's a glorious life. It's a life knowing they are so loved and so precious. Father, for those that are here that that are struggling, and maybe they've been believing a lie, Lord, I I pray that you pull that out by the roots. And in its place, Lord, I pray that you, you let them know how special they are to you, how gifted and talented they are. In Jesus' name, amen.